Welcome to Democracy Nerd. I am Jeff Smith. So we've all heard the following joke. Some of us may have been the butt of it. How can you tell if a politician is lying? Well, their mouth is moving. Might you know one of the older jokes in the book. But what might be novel is the idea, and hang with me for a moment here, of using honesty as some sort of check, some sort of even cost on politicians who go overboard. I know what we're thinking, and it's almost hypocritical for me even to bring it up. It's impossible. It's the subject of crazy pills or whatever color. But maybe holding politicians who make commitments accountable shouldn't be impossible. Maybe hard truths that are told could be rewarded or even celebrated. Is it possible to have some sort of political cost for political lying? February 2021, the issue of Electoral Studies Journal, an article entitled Making Them Pay, Using the Norm of Honesty to Generate Costs for Political Lies. I already have a quibble with the title. I'll get to that quibble in a moment, but I have great gratitude to the co-authors of the piece. They join us today to discuss the wild and crazy idea of holding lying politicians accountable. We're joined by Sarah Croco, Professor of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland, Jared McDonald, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Mary Washington, and Candace Torito, also from the University of Maryland, where she is the Director of Applied Political Analytics. Welcome to Democracy Nerd. Candace, I introduced you last, so I'll say hello first. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having us. We appreciate it. Sarah, welcome to you, and also welcome to Jared. And I'll start with Sarah, and then I'll go to Jared. But Sarah, what was the inspiration for this research? Well, I think, uh, you know, the three of us have worked together on a lot of projects. And I think what led to some of our best work was just seeing the daily norm breaking that happened under the Trump administration. There were just so many things that he would do. Uh, that just seemed to defy political logic or were maybe something that had been pretty commonly thought to, you know, be in, you know, politicians behavior, but that he took to an extreme. So he would just lie so much about so many things, even very trivial things, like when he mispronounced, you know, Tim Cook's name, he said he called him Tim Apple and said he lied about that. He would just lie so ubiquitously and so we thought, you know, is there any way to get him to pay a cost for this? Or is it true, like the conventional wisdom would argue, that Republicans are just so solidly behind him that they don't care if he's lying, they're just going to support him? And so I am I think what may have, you know, we wrote another paper that looked at um, the lie the administration put forward about not being able to stop the family separation policy at the border and that kind of spun into other projects where we're like, hey, there's a whole bunch of different types of lies we could talk about here. You know, that was a very consequential lie, obviously. But then the lie about was he involved in Jared Kushner's security detail or security clearance? Uh, and so we just thought, what could we possibly do to get these politicians to pay a cost for lying? And uh, so that kind of turned into these three survey experiments, but it was really just investigating whether, you know, like what you were saying in the beginning, politicians lie all the time and they seem to get away with it. We wanted to know, is that always true? Or is there something we can do to get people to care? Jared, hearing that, do you remember a collective aha moment that served as that impetus for collaboration? Do you remember a particular time when you said, aha, this is over the line. I've been used to 
I've been used to prevarication, mistruths, untruths, lies, but now it's over the line. Yeah, well, and I think Sarah pointed to this with the the family separation. I think we were kind of all on the same page of this is, you know, not just the lying about it, the actual what was happening at the U.S.-Mexico border. And I think it was Sarah contacted me and Candace and was like, what can we do? And I'm thinking, well, there's not a whole lot we can do about the U.S.-Mexico border, but we could probably study some things. And one of the things that we were all on the same page about was just that, you know, it's so it's so frequent that politicians lie, but that they they do it in some way, right? There's some new information that comes to light. They, you know, Obama draws a red line and then doesn't, you know, enforce that red line. But then he says, well, it's because Congress didn't didn't act, didn't give me the authority to do something, right? He can always come up with a rationale. And what made Trump unique was these were seemingly uniquely awful circumstances and the lies were so blatantly apparent. And so, you know, I, I think after the initial sort of, hey, we should do something. So we had a, a brainstorming session uh, in, in, in Sarah's office. And uh, I've, I've done some work in the past with um, Zach Scott and Mike Hanmer, uh, where we used just individually, we used these kind of honesty pledges. So sometimes people on surveys will lie about whether they voted in an election. So we thought, hey, you know, for, for, for the fun of it, let's make people pledge to be honest when they report it and see if it actually has an effect. And it did. And so thought maybe, you know, there, there's, I think it really was kind of an open empirical question at the time. If we try to make people think about honesty more, will they be more likely to punish a politician who is very, very blatantly lying? They can't really rationalize it as, oh, you know, Congress didn't give him authority. It's really it's really just it's really clear. It's black and white. He said this and it was actually that. And everybody knew it at the time and everybody knew it after. Yeah, it, it just oh, right, it's not relevant. Um, you know, the lie, lying may not be relevant to people if they can explain it away more easily. Um, but what made this what, we felt like we were entering a new era of politics where you could just lie with impunity and nothing. You know, I, I sometimes summarize my research with LOL. Nothing matters. Right. Like they can just do whatever they want. Nothing seems to matter. Um, well, that's not a great way to operate in a democracy. Maybe we should be looking for ways to generate some kind of cost. Yeah, and I want to get to Candace, but I, they're already you already uh, triggered me twice. So the first was use of the word norms, and the second was the hashtag nothing matters. All right, so I want to lobby you for a moment, and then I'll go to Candace. Candace, thank you for your patience. I apologize. So I want to I want to banish the word norms. Not I want to reduce its use meaningfully, particularly when we're talking about principles. Because I think people who don't think that normal politics is all that great, that the, how the country is going is all that great, who aren't really wanting to vote for normal, when you say, well, they're violating norms, that's not that powerful a critique. When we say you're violating critical principles, well, then people who think that they want to be principled at least some of the time, well, that feels better. So, And, I, it, and it became the talking point. Heck, it was what President Obama said, apparently, to Donald Trump. They're not only laws, they're also norms. And I've been, I'm crying to the wilderness and welcome to my wilderness uh, to say, no, no, let's say principles instead of norms, because who gives a damn about norms when norm ain't all that great? My second, my second quibble, I'm all fired up today. 
<laughs> My second quibble is that nothing matters. There's a lot that matters. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the primary thing that has mattered to the modern Republican voter is beating Democrats and making them look bad or making them feel bad or making them cry or triggering them or convincing other people that they're bad. That does matter. If you're doing that and you're Donald Trump, truth is a tool. Truth is not a principle. It's not a shared commitment. It is, truth is a tool. Other things could be tools too, setting aside that tool. And there's another tool because there is something that matters very much. We say, oh, well, nothing matters. I think that uh, allows us to sort of collectively exhale and throw up our hands instead of what you all did, which is actually try to dig in and figure out something to do, which everybody appreciates very much, including me, but rather saying the problem is the wrong things are mattering, that merely uh, attacking one's political enemies seems to be the only thing that matters, and there should be things that matter more. All right, you've triggered me. You've you've pulled my you've pulled my cord, and now my recording spat out my face. I will <laughs> shut up so you can respond and tell me how I'm dumb or say something else entirely. And then, Candace, I will go back to you. I I, I was just going to say I think I think you're you're spot on in the sense that you know we talk about norms because we're academics, and that's sort of the the word that is used. But principle is not far off of that, right? Norms are these informal rules that govern behavior and even sometimes preferences and attitudes. Uh, it's, it's oftentimes how we learn what we should think is by observing other people. Um, and you're right, you can have norms that are really focused on in-group loyalty and smacking down the out-group. Um, but, and this kind of gets to your second point, that's nothing matters. Sure, I, I think you're right that the wrong things matter, but we contain multitudes and the wrong things may matter a lot in American politics and we can be frustrated by that, but there are, there are other features of our cognition really, right? There's, there are other things that matter to us outside of partisanship, even if we are strong partisans and how do we bring out the best in people rather than the worst? Uh, so that's kind of, I think where we, where we where we entered this, but it was really not, I don't think, in a way of disagreeing with the the basic premise that it's not that nothing matters, but the wrong things are mattering and mattering a little too much. Candace, and thank you for that. Yeah, as the paper begins by asking, do citizens, do voters punish politicians who lie? So let me pose that question to you. Do they? How do they? And if they don't, why don't they? Yeah, well, um, if I may, let me just jump um, uh, over with Jared for just a second for some support. But like, I, I agree. I think principle is a good like shortcut word, maybe on the way to norms. But I also want to point out that norms can act in, I think, a broader uh, manner than principles. Um, specifically, norms have the aspect where there is an internal and an external pressure for a person to act a certain way. Right. And so not only like Jared mentioned, we observe people behaving certain ways, but you also like if I'm in an elevator, right, if I'm, I'm in a hotel right now, but if I go into the hotel elevator and someone joins me, um, I'm not going to just start screaming in their face for no reason. Right. Well, you're a nice but person, no, but there's no that's but that's not because I'm a principled person. That's because I am adhering to a social norm that that's odd behavior and it would make somebody else uncomfortable. And so the idea of a social norm, I think, is a little bit maybe perhaps more academic, but also a little bit more group oriented. And so the other part of this is that we have several groups. As Jared mentioned, we're like a multitude. And so we have these kind of different factions. James Madison would be upset about it. But like there are different groups in which certain norms matter more 
to us than the norms of other associations that we have. So this is, you know, if you if you uh, adopt any any multitude of different kinds of identities, right? Um, I'm a political scientist, but I'm also a tap dancer. The norms that come with those things are just different. And in some moments, the norms of one group might overpower the norms of the other group. So for, for whatever I, that's I appreciate worth. that. And, and yeah. I'll first concede, to be clear, <laughs> just about every smart, well-meaning person says norms. And, and just about everybody. Okay, I am in the wilderness. I am lobbying you. I have. Yeah, I have it's the a power good to shortcut admit. word. I think. I, like I like the, if you say that, it's it's ringing a very similar bell in most. Yeah, I, I, I have. I have no power to admonish anyone. I I only have the hope to persuade, <laughs> to plead, to beg. I will also respond to uh, what we should do. When we enter elevators. I'll tell you what my dad has done <laughs> since I was a small child. Okay, my dad will do it. He'll walk in the elevator if it's crowded. Walk in a crowded and and he will look around and he will say as. The, as he is pausing the doors from closing, he will say, I guess you guys are all wondering why I called this meeting. And it went from me not having any judgment to me being embarrassed to me being, oh man, eye rolling to now me doing the same thing. Man, <laughs> I believe this is, I believe this is the arc. This is the norm now of the family, which I have, I'm not going to say joined because it wasn't volitional. I, I I'm teaching socialization it. tomorrow. I'll use this. Yeah, no, I love, I love this. <laughs> so I'll go back though to you, Candace, or I could jump to Sarah. You could start Candace and kick it up to Sarah as soon as you want, or, or then back to Jared. We'll bounce around as, as it pleases everyone. Uh, but do, uh, do voters, do citizens punish politicians who lie? And, you know, and, and, and if they don't, why don't they? Uh, I think, I think, the answer is probably a little bit unsatisfactory. I think it's sometimes, um, but probably not like innately, not like not as a, a natural instinct, you know. Um, and being partisan is still very much on brand, if if not more so, over the last like several decades, right? Um, and so you kind of get into related, which we do in, in kind of in, in our research a little bit into the fields of or the term terminology of polarization or motivated reasoning or cognitive dissonance, you know, um, and and there is when you are a partisan and it's cool to be partisan what's what's the good news is that we kind of act like sports fans when we're in that position um and our team is our party right whichever party we identify with and we're very good fans we are not fair weather fans we're there for the rain and the shine um and so when it rains we get into defensive mode and a lot of that is just because of our brains our brains are doing that to help us survive in the group um, and not cause this cognitive dissonance, right? And so if most of our opinions about our group selection are positive opinions, and then we get this piece of hail hitting it, you know, that we're going to dismiss that information as bad information, because it doesn't mesh with our existing impression. And so that's, I mean, it's just naturally what you do. I mean, I, I can't imagine you could find a a, a, you know, former Patriots fan or Patriots fan back in the day who would say, you know, yeah, Tom Brady, that was, those balls were deflated, you know what I mean? Or, or whatever the case may be, it's, you're going to be hard pressed to find that the same way that you're going to be hard pressed to find partisans who are willingly of their own accord saying, you know what, actually, let me consider this. Um, and, and, and kind of instituting punishments for, for occurrences of falsehoods or lies. Sarah, I might shift the question just a little bit. 
when do picking up what, from what Candace was saying, and if anybody wants to call me to call me to call them professor, I would be I, I should have asked for permission to use first names before I just did. It was just the first names written on the piece of paper. I don't mean to be unduly familiar. Uh, so so Professor uh, Croco, the uh, do you uh, anything you want to add to Candace, or maybe I can sharpen the question a little bit by saying when do or when don't voters punish politicians for lying? I think they don't punish first when they share a party, right? Party ID is a hell of a drug. Uh, and so I think that if uh, somebody who they identify with that they share a party with, they are going to give that person a lot of leeway and are going to want to actively avoid punishing them because it's punishing that leader, right? By saying negative things about them, withholding their vote, whatever it might be, reflects badly on them, right? Why would you be in the same party as them, you know, this, and now you're criticizing them. And what we found, and Candace and I have done work on this, Jared and I, where we find that when people flip-flop, and so this is, I think, pretty analogous to lying. So when a leader changes position, as long as they're changing that position to the position that you like, they don't care that it came after a flip-flop. And I think the same thing is true of lying. If they're lying, but they're saying something that you like to hear, I think you don't want to punish them. You're like, no, I kind of like the conclusion that they're reaching. I like the policy that this is advancing. I really don't care what this person is saying. I'm getting the outcome that I want, right? So in the thing that inspired this paper, right, the family separation, I, you know, I vividly remember that press conference where I think it was probably the DHS secretary was saying, we have no ability to stop this unilaterally. I remember vividly picking up the phone and calling Jared and saying, we need to get Candace on this because, oh, my gosh. But to me, that was a blatant lie. We know that that's not true. But I think the people hearing it might have, you know, at home might have been like, that sounds really implausible that the president cannot do something about this. But they didn't care because they liked that policy. They liked the idea of being really tough at the border. And so I think they were very reluctant to punish on the other hand, right, if you hate that politician, if you're not in that party, it's really fun to call that politician out for lying. Um, but it's just all about what your party is and what position you like. I appreciate uh, the analysis, the analogy. Trump wasn't punished for becoming anti-abortion. Obama wasn't punished for becoming pro-same-sex marriage. Right. Uh, that's really that's really helpful. But please continue. Oh, yeah. Right? No, they. Oh, oh, go ahead, Jared. Well, I was going to add to that, right? I think it's important, you know, and, and we we looked at, right, Kirsten Nielsen was the one who made these, and actually, she did pay a price. We 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 found that with our other paper, and and that sort of dovetails nicely with what we did uh, in this particular article, um, because we find that, yeah, it's not just the party label, it's sort of, there needs to be some sort of affective attachment, right? Trump is the leader of your party. This is a real politician. And so you've got skin in the game. And if it's some generic hypothetical Republican and you're Republican, you may not really feel that strong of an attachment. I think right now about like George Santos or whatever name he's going by right now, I <laughs> couldn't tell you. But I wouldn't, I mean, I haven't seen, you know, empirical data on this, but I imagine he's suffering quite a bit. And a lot of that's in-party criticism, but the lying is pretty blatant. And he's not somebody Republicans feel invested in. Donald Trump was a very different case. And so it's it's when you kind of have that mixture of both, there's, uh, uh, you know, 
whether the, the, there might be a lie, but you really, really, really like this person. And actually, and to be fair, you know, Democrats will say Donald Trump was lying, but they didn't like him before. So it's not like the lie really had a cost among them either. You know, they they were going to call him regardless of whether he was lying. Yeah, I think. Oh, oh go please. ahead. No, just to nail home or drive home Jared's point. I think that's absolutely critical that when the, the person is a known politician who you have this deep attachment to, and I think Trump was just the epitome of this and that and to be fair trump got really far in life with this bombastic no consequences you know punch back twice as hard kind of style of dealing with the public he did not change at all when he took the presidency and i think so he was used to that like this is totally normal behavior for him it is not normal behavior for politicians i don't think a lot of politicians as we see with santos like being caught in blatant lies that's not fun for them to deal with because i think a lot of politicians would rather appear to be truthful or if they get caught in kind of a tricky situation where they have to explain, they can use kind of slick behavior to get out of it. Like, oh, well, I got new information or, oh, Congress wouldn't back me on this. They can kind of weasel their way out of it. Trump never really tried to do that. I think he really would just blatantly try to create a new reality <laughs> and people would reward him for that. But I don't think that is as easy for other people to do like when we showed in our other paper that Kirsten Nielsen right couldn't deflect the blame, she did pay a higher price for that. Or when we have in our paper in our experiments, we have totally fictitious politicians, right? So you might share a party with them, but you have no personal attachment. Those people do pay a higher price. But when it's someone who is like the guy in your party who everybody identifies with, it's really hard to kind of tarnish that person. So and, I've heard and, and three one, things then. I've heard three things then. One, I've heard if you're invested in them, if you agree with them. And the third thing, which might be isn't amplified first, is if you identify with them. And I do want to get back to that, uh, that part of identity, because I think that that can be uh, analogy, you know, uh, uh, pun intended, a trump card when it comes to evaluating uh, truth. But Professor McDonald, you want to jump in? Um, well, I was just going to say that, you know, even even when we find, you know, costs for lying where, you know, we're we're celebrating like a five point effect. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, there's one thing for me to say, oh, but, you know, actually, they do pay a cost here. People aren't engaging in motivated reasoning. They're actually sort of more dispassionately considering what's going on. It ends up, you know, maybe that describes a small fraction of the American electorate, which we still consider to be a good thing, right? Because if, if you know, election outcomes, you know, shift five points, likely to, you know, shift the the, the outcome of the, you know, the who wins. Um, but still, you know, most people are indeed operating under kind of the world that the, 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 the picture Sarah was painting there, of, you know, just kind of we're locked in, we're not moving. There's just that little group kind of maybe 20% in the middle who might be willing under certain circumstances to enact a cost. But that was huge to us. Like that, the fact that we could get Republicans to turn on Trump and say anything negative about him, that we could move that needle even a little bit, ran totally counter to conventional wisdom that 
Republicans were in lockstep with Trump no matter what he did. So that to me was huge. I remember being in my office when we were kind of going over, you know, like probably all gathered around Jared's laptop looking at these results. And we were like, holy cow, we actually moved Republicans. Um, That was kind of like, you know, totally agree with what Jared said. that This is a very small percent we're talking about. But that that was big for me. I want to give a, a Hannah Arendt alert. Uh, the when when somebody um, me uh, reads too little, you oversight the same stuff. So I will do that now. Uh, so Hannah Arendt <laughs> would talk about Hitler. Hitler would have blatant lies. Okay, blatant lies, and her analysis was his people didn't care because even when it was proven that it was a blatant lie, it just showed that he was skillfully and successfully putting one over on his opponents. So our adding if our adding to those based on conjecture and you know previous reading to be clear uh if are adding to that list of when lies are more likely to be forgiven if you think that that I'm use the word leader is on my side uh and there to help me or me to help them destroy an insidious threat we share a common enemy uh, then i may be more likely to forgive it any other any other indicia uh any other factors that make us or make voters more likely to forgive, uh, to forgive a lie or make, you know, say that it doesn't matter that much. It, well, I don't know if this is the same point that you just made, but it rang a familiar bell and I think it's slightly different. So in the book, Demagoguery and Democracy by Patricia Roberts Miller, she talks about a similar kind of dynamic where they, people love it when a demagogue kind of goes all in and says things that are just crazy over the line because it shows their commitment to the cause, right? And so even if it is something so harebrained and just out there, that feeds into the appeal of the demagogue because it shows like that, I mean, I'm not trying to like reference John McCain at all here, but it like shows that they're willing to be like a maverick or that they're a rebel or a renegade. And so I think that also, that's similar to what you were saying that like it's they're willing to challenge the other guy, but it's more that, Wow, this person oh, is this person is so invested in our cause that they're willing to kind of engage in this principle slash norm breaking behavior, uh, and that's you know what gets people's attention when a demagogue speaks like that publicly. Uh, it may turn off some people, surely, but to the people who want to believe in this person, that just makes them more attractive. Like, wow, they're willing to really put themselves out there in saying this crazy stuff. They care. They're, they're as committed as I am and or they're bold and courageous. And Professor Trito, Candace, I want to go, have you jump in on this also either to pile on to what uh, what when lies aren't cared about or flip it and say when they are, right? We want to transition to that uh, sooner eventually. Uh, one other thing, though, occurs to me that it's uh, when there are uh, uh, questions about, is, is it different now than it's ever been? Questions about, is it different betwixt types of voters? And before we get to some of that granularity, it reminds Heck, I'm reminded of like the Nixon era, when the, sort of a, what I'll call sort of a new era of, of political activist, particularly within the Republican Party at that time, that was trying to fight against, I'm going to say liberal norms. And 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 I'm not going to say, and I don't mean that big L liberal. I don't mean that big D Democratic. I mean the idea that 
some professors at University of Maryland or some other place, plus some plus some think tanky experts, plus some do-gooder activists and citizen groups are going to figure out based on facts and analysis and truth how we're going to make the world a little bit better and we're going to pass things to make the world a little bit better. Just trying to disrupt that entire enterprise. A, a, a it probably ended up being uh, more, it, it certainly ended up being more embodied within one political party, but it wasn't really even merely about attacking one political party. It was just, it was the entire enterprise. And so when somebody, when somebody says fake news, Trump said it second, but when Trump said, when Trump said fake news that I'm against the whole media, it also ties in not only to some maybe mythological, uh, you know, kind of under-informed voter, but also to the people who are bought into the project of disrupting the entire sort of like rational governance project. Yeah, I mean, so my my reaction to you saying fake news is that that is that is the the script given to our brain for when it's dismissing that bad piece of information, and it's like this puzzle piece doesn't fit, square peg, round hole, fake news. Right. And, and it's just become an easy kind of throwaway statement to verbalize the fact that instead of perhaps adhering to a social norm and just disagreeing with you in my mind and keeping my mouth shut, I'm telling you, like, I'm just not going to 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 like incorporate that thing that you just said at all. And I've already forgotten it. You know what I mean? Um, I, I will say that for the case of when when does lying matter or when is when is that? Uh, actually uh, creating a punishment for politicians in particular. Yeah. Um, I think we have a small window here and it's the, the group that Jared mentioned earlier, which is kind of everybody that's squishy in the middle, meaning they hate both parties the same or like po- both parties uh, not very much the same, right? Um, and so the, the interesting thing always to me about independence is that there's way more of them self-identified than there actually are. Um, there's a a few decades of uh, research and survey uh, research design that we ask, we ask if you ever gotten a, a political poll on the phone or something, they ask you the party identification question. Um, and if you've ever been the person who says, I'm an independent, uh, they ask you a second time and they say, okay, totally independent. But if you had to choose, like if you were voting today, which side would you choose? And it turns out that most of the people who say independent the first time will choose on the second question and very few actually remain. So it looks like 30% is like 10% a lot, you know? Um, and so even so, even if I said those 30% are the same, or if I said those 10% are actually independents, like it, that's such a very small group to be sure, but also a group that's not collectively surrounded around a certain set of ideals, right? Independent is not a political party. It is in certain states and there might be platforms in those states but especially in federal politics or even nationally across state lines, independent is not a party. And so those people are actually just a, you know, amalgamation of a lot of different viewpoints and a lot of different positions on what we, at, even in academia, deem as like a spectrum left to right. But we don't really, you know, that's one of the secret things that we've just made up. I'm just kidding. But it's, it's very useful. But right, there is nothing left about Democrats versus Republicans. I could flip it, it doesn't matter. Like we've, we've used it to kind of illustrate a spectrum, but I, you know, I could ask reasonable people, I guess reasonable people would disagree about where to put liber- libertarians, for instance, on that kind of spectrum, right? Um, it just depends on how you consider it. And so all of those independents in the middle, because they don't have a hard identity 
for one party or the other. And because American politics tends to be so dichotomous between these two parties, most politicians are one or the other, not all, but most. In order for an independent to feel attachment, they got to find an independent. And then they're up against the challenge of finding an independent who's actually the same kind of independent that they are, right? And that they don't just happen to say that word and share that label, but actually they do have some sort of identity of shared principles or beliefs underneath of that. Um, and so it it it's it's kind of a double-edged sword in that it's a small group, but it's also an incoherent group um, across all of the, the individuals within it. And so they are the, the people who are probably the ones punishing um, to any sort of actual effect, yeah. but they're hard to reach in mass. But every politician in a close race is going after that little sliver of people. So they matter very, very much. It's just hard to know exactly how to target them. Um, and and it, it, you know, it makes it very difficult and also extremely consequential. And maybe fewer of them now. I, I was going to ask the question, are we seeing is there any way to sort of longitudinally analyze or over time evaluate whether uh, whether either either using the Trump era as an example or outlier or otherwise, whether it feels worse now, right? Where it feels like, you know, politicians have always sort of lied and sometimes they've gotten away with it, sometimes they haven't. Uh, all human beings lie. I think about college football coaches, right? The greatest football coach of the modern era, Nick Saban, right? Famously did exactly what he's supposed to do when asked if he was looking for another job. He said, no, I'm going to coach these kids. I'm committed to this school when he already knew he was leaving. Right. And, and he wasn't punished. Right. He's won multiple championships. And in fact, if you look, well, that's kind of what you're supposed to. Do. You're not supposed to say it. So it's not limited to this, but we don't get to vote on Nick Saban. Right. I don't get to vote on the contractor who tells me it's going to be two weeks when it's going to be six. Right. It, it's just kind of how it goes. Is it worse now? Let's imagine, though, for a moment it is what I just heard you say, uh, Press Trader, what I just heard you say, Candace, is that uh, that if we now after big sort. I'll take another word I, that triggers me, which is polarization. It's not symmetry. It's not symmetrical, so it's not polarized. But the uh, but sort of political division or some useful word or critique that sounds nonpartisan, but is but flatly and honestly describes what's happened to the modern Republican Party. Uh, that that dynamic of sort of a big sort of American politics has meant there are fewer flips. You're not, you don't have as many sort of Southern Democrats waffling or as many Northeastern Republicans waffling and unsure and therefore in the mix. Uh, Professor Croco, you first, and you can hand off to anybody you want. Have we seen any longitudinal shift that we can evaluate? And if we did, what might explain it? And might what's happened to the division within our politics be one way to understand it? So I don't know that it's gotten worse. I think the landscape just changed. So I don't think it's gotten worse in terms of politicians lying. I think politicians have always talked out of both sides of their mouth. That's the nature of the job is that you're trying to please as many people as possible while advancing your own political interests. So I don't think that you can hearken back to some golden era where politicians didn't lie. I think it's actually a lot harder for people to lie now because of social media, because of cable news, because if somebody wants to make a big stink that somebody lied, they can easily publicize that. That being said, I think we're in a really interesting media environment right now. And this is, I'm not 
this isn't from my brain, this is from the book How Democracies Die, and I'm sure other places as well, but they talk about this right-wing ecosystem that has developed basically since Gingrich, if not slightly before, right, where they have developed, you know, talk radio, Fox News, things that really are good at staying on message about Republican candidates, Republican politicians, right? That helps, I think, you know, I you said you don't like the word polarization. I would say, I'm trying to think of like a new term for that, like- Nobody's been um, able to come up with one. I think- I'm as- looking for it. I have one. I have one. I'm going to lobby for- calcification. Asymmetrical right. extremism is what I would say, is that like one, the right has down. moved- Hold on. Asymmetric use- extremism. That's my yeah. new term because- I always talk about this with my students in class that they're like, oh, well, the center is best. And they have this notion that, oh, the best is always the compromise in the middle. And I'm like, well, the middle changes if one party is always moving further to one side than the other, right? Then they're dragging the middle more towards them. So I think that the environment that- Sarah, can we just pause for a moment and get Candace and Jared and I all to agree to use asymmetric extremism at least three times in the next quarter? Is that a fair- (laughs) Is that a fair commitment? I'm on board. I just I need to be held accountable, just like a politician would, which means maybe not at all. But the but I but I I think we should commit to that. Is that Jared? Is that fair? Uh, yeah. I mean, I I sometimes use uh, calcification more than more than polarization. Sarah's got Sarah's got one on you. Asymmetric extremism gets gets us something important because it's not just what is what is extreme. What is extreme? The, the 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 set of issues that we are, you know, based off of, you know, 2000 standards, the Democrats are far more liberal than they used to be. It's moving uh, to me. Again, I, I'm just going to reference how democracies die because they talk about these two principles slash norms of mutual tolerance. Commitment to democracy. Itself yes. Mutual toleration and forbearance. And the idea that it's totally fine to just move away from those two things that is where I see the asymmetry. You're right that the left has become more liberal. Certainly the right has become more right. That's fine. If both sides were moving, right, fine. I might not disagree so much with the idea that the center is like this thing that we should prize. But the fact that one party has been more willing to move away from these principles that, hey, let's keep playing this fair democracy game for as long as we can. That to me is where the asymmetry comes in. And it's not so to me, I disagree with calcification because to me, that's a hardening, but it doesn't imply any movement. Oh, I'm loving this. This is exactly the kind of, this is exactly the kind of stuff I want to get into. Not what was planned, but it sounds feels <laughs> great. So so what I heard you say is sort of a, a growing departure, asymmetric departure from a commitment to democracy. Uh, maybe we'd call it democratic norms. Maybe we call it democratic principles. Maybe we have another word. It, it sounds like, Professor Torito, you're going to be the tiebreaker or uh, on our on our commitment of whether we're going to agree to say something like asymmetric extremism or if we have something better to say. Um, I don't know. I think I might have to throw in, I'll brainstorm. I'll try to think of something because I feel like this is just a lot of syllables. But also, I mean, yeah, and, and both of the parties are also changing in different ways as they pull apart, but they're also changing in policy-related ways, right? Their platforms are changing. So it's not it's not just about democratic norms. It is about legislation, you know? Um, and so I think the other, I mean, just totally different conversation, but the other interesting side of that is that the more, more polarized legislation is 
you know, the more often it is to die anyway. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that the more not, not the word, the more whatever we decide to call this, not polarization, the more that happens, you know, the less successful governance becomes. Um, yeah, because we did a show, we did a show on that very thing. aiming to win the whole thing, but you're not going to win the whole thing because, you know, like every action has an equal and opposite reaction, you yeah. know, and, and so it becomes a game about just politics um, and just campaigning all the time, all the time, which is not necessarily new. You know, politicians have been raising money every day for ever, you know, um, but now, now not forever, but for a very long time. Um, but but now it's it's constant campaigning. So now you're constantly seeing spinning and you're always on the platform. You're always on the stump. You're always in sell mode. And that, you know, it increases the, the benefit to a politician of being very broad with their language and trying to be a little bit slippery and perhaps telling one group one thing and another group another thing, you know, and as Sarah mentioned, I'll also say like the media environment and the media structure that we have right now is kind of a mess, you know, and so you do have like this ecosystem on the right, but you also have one on the left. And as a person who studied who studies uh, political advertising from campaigns, I know that there is a belief and also a demonstrable evidence that the more you just say it, just say it and say it over and over and over again, that people start to remember it, right? It's the way we remember jingles, just over and over and over again. It does not matter what it actually is. If you ever catch yourself singing like the Empire song or something and you're like, what? You know, I, I can call and get carpets right now and I do not need them. And never when I've seen that commercial, have I been like, you know, I really need to replace my carpets. But I know exactly what their phone number is. And it's not because it's true or has any sort of factual anchored, you know, meaning in my life. It's because it's catchy, you know, make America great again. Catchy, you know, even though. Roto Rooter, that's the name. Right, right. <laughs> Professor Coco, uh, Croco, back to you. Well, I think so. I totally agree with Candace. I I also know the Empire carpet number as well. Yeah. Um, five eight eight two three hundred. But what I think <laughs> is, Luckily, I disagree. Luckily, I disagree. We, get, we get big money <laughs> every if time. If not, if not, you've somebody. got a clip to send to them. <laughs> I disagree, or maybe I'm just needing more help. From Candace, because she was like, it's not just about a commitment to democracy. It's about campaigning and how we're in this situation now where people feel like they are running all the time. Mm -hmm. To me, the commitment to democracy is fundamental, is more important because to that to me has been the catalyst for win at all costs. Oh, it's, you know, Obama gets a Supreme Court nomination. No, he doesn't. I'm Mitch McConnell and I'm saying no. Was that perfectly legal for McConnell to do? Yes. Did it violate decades, centuries of dem democratic norms? Yes. Right. This willingness to burn the house down so that you can win, right, at all costs, that to me is where we have seen this asymmetry. I totally agree with you that politicians are running all the time. Of course they are, right? They That is the one assumption that political scientists can agree on is that politicians want to stay in power. So of course, they're always looking towards the next election. But I think that what makes now different from earlier, heavily corrupt heavily polarized eras of American history is that one party is asymmetrically mm -hmm. running away from democratic norms and the other one isn't. 
Um, if we can bring in, you know, our friend Lily Mason's research, right? I mean, she would refer to this as affective polarization. There's the word polarization again, but right, it's, you know, going into social identity theory, she talks about it's it's the winning that matters. If the winning is what matters, then you don't care what process you won. You just, you won, that's it. Um, and so if you lost, then you need to look for other ways to stay in power, to still win. Um, if you lost based on the rules of the game, then we have to claim that the rules must have been broken in some way. Uh, again, this kind of gets to the cognitive dissonance. No, I want to, and I want to jump on that. I want to jump on that, Jared. I want to jump on that, Professor McDonald. The uh, that, and it goes back even, or I'll, I'll even hearken to not very many minutes ago when I was trying to use the you know, sort, sort of small L liberal. Is the game truth or is the game power? And Mitch McConnell might say in his more honest moments, these liberals, and I don't care about their political party, are wrong. This is not a game of truth. This is not a game of reason. This is not a game of figuring things out. This is a game of wielding power. And we will use the tools necessary to wield power, and we'll use the power that we have. How does one, well, I'll use this question. In that context, why does the truth matter? In a game of power, when people, I mean, care vastly more, and by the way, rationally, care rationally more, about whether or not they're going to have sanctity over their own bodily choices or whether they are going to be damned to eternal damnation or be saved for eternity. They care about these things vastly more and ra well, rationally or irrationally care about the vastly more than uh, whether or not the politician that agrees or disagrees with them said something that was true or untrue. Why should we care? Or maybe better, how much should we care about how honest or dishonest politicians are? Difficult. There's, there's like a normative aspect of how much should we care if a politician um, is honest and how much do we care? And I think we do care uh, because, I, you know, to, to quote with the, the sort of the points you're making, you know, these are the things that matter to us. Honesty maybe doesn't you know, we're, we're weirdos, right? Like we pay way more attention to this than any rational person would. Um, and so most people are not really all that familiar with the politicians, with the particular policy positions they have. Yes, they have some shorthand understanding of partisanship uh, and maybe ideology, but that's probably just a byproduct of partisanship. So how do I determine who I should support? I need something to grab onto. And if I know that this politician is a liar, that might be good enough reason not to vote for them. And is that a good reason not to vote for them? I mean, that's a more deeper philosophical question, but I would say, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, if, 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 you know, democratic accountability is based on politicians say they're going to do something in office, you evaluate them based on their record and whether they followed through on their promises, then whether somebody is trustworthy um, might be a relevant consideration. Uh, I, and you know, we're just trying to make that more of a relevant consideration. I thought when you asked that question to me, I, you know, I don't know, obviously this is, you know, podcast, it's not visual, but I made this face because to me it is, I can't think of any politician who would say it's about truth. Of course, it's about power. That's what they all want. That's that's what you should want your politician to want the power so they can advance your causes. The only way that I think truth would matter to like a very draconian, rational oops, person is if they were like, 
let me start over. The only reason why truth should matter to an individual voter is because if they all of a sudden see that their politician is lying, that person becomes untrustworthy and unreliable. So they're not as predictable. Like, oh, that person lied to get the policy I want now. But that shows that they don't have these principles, that they might not be committed to what I want. So I can't trust them in the future to continue to pursue my policies. I don't care if they lied to get what I want now, but I don't know that they're trustworthy into the future at staying kind of dedicated to what I as a citizen want. So I think that's where evaluate. It makes it hard to evaluate. I don't know if they're they're, actually, if the reason I would forgive their lie is because I think they're on my side. Well, maybe I can't even figure out if they are on my side, if I can't trust anything they say. But then again, to add to Sarah's point, and she mentioned this earlier, some research that we've all done on on flip-flopping, if someone uh, uh, flips or, or changes their mind or says one thing and then comes over to my side, I'm not very keen on being like, oh, well, two seconds ago, he disagreed with me. In the same way that I may, and I think I think this is a little bit more, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but like a little bit more theoretical of like how that works is that, okay, well, if you're lying to me, then I can't trust you to hold it down when you actually are voting. But if that person does end up still voting that way, then the lie, we're back to the lie doesn't really matter, right? And so I think that to, to answer your question, like when does the lie matter? It just depends on what the lie is, right? I think that our instinct to want to believe that truth matters in politics is a social norm, right? And it's kind of what what Jared started the answer with. It's just it's interesting to ask, like, should we care, right? That is normative language. Um, but you know, the, I think I think the only way to like think about how we actually change minds in a tangible, in such a tangible way that we're changing overall opinions is again back to that idea of like repeat, 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 repeat. If someone lies and then lies again and then lies again and then lies again and then lies again theoretically theoretically those lies would kind of become the new overall impression of that person um but if you're in that known entity land where someone already has a a a long-term or just a i don't know maybe bulbous information set of information or like you know just a lot of information that's like holding down their impression of a certain politician you can imagine that the amount of bad information they'd need to encounter that's counter to their positive impression is even bigger versus someone maybe like George Santos, who is just coming right out of the gate and just throwing a bunch of lies on the bonfire. And that is becoming the overall impression of him. So he's, I mean, I was thinking about him, you know, leading up to this today of like, wonder if he fits into the next study because it's interesting in the opposite direction. You know what I mean? Um, like, no, we've been trying to have this conversation for well before I knew George Santos's name. Right. 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 And, yes. and, and yes. yet, and I don't think he has engaged in his hijinks in order to promote the listens of this episode. I don't think that was, <laughs> I don't think it was on his mind. If I asked him, he might say that it the was, but I don't here. know if I could trust him to tell me the truth on the matter. <laughs> so I, it's, it's just a, I'm not going to say a, a nice happenstance. It's just a happenstance. Yeah. Uh, he is. Yeah. I mean, he, he is truly, I can't think of another politician in memory who has had so many lies come to light so fast. Oops. Bad timing on those lies mm-hmm. coming to light. Why yeah. didn't we know more about this? Yeah. Things that are seemingly so obviously. But what's, what's interesting, what's interesting to see though, too, and I because I also you would you would expect if this was like an essay question on a test or something, I'd be like, oh, this. This he's resigning within a week or something, you know, and he's still holding on. And maybe it's with white knuckles, but 
the other part of our, our, our uh, or I guess the other benefit, haha, of our media structure kind of being all over the place, we, you know, on the one hand, you have options to self-select into things that are reinforcing what you already think. And that's not so good, uh, you know, if you're really trying to be super informed. Um, but also our, our attention spans are, spans are super short, you know, and that that translates into other activity. That's not just, that doesn't just mean that I scroll a lot of my phone. It does mean that, but it also means that, that as voters, we forget stuff very, very quickly, you know? And so, especially the longer the term is for a president, I mean, holding them accountable for stuff that they do in year one is super difficult compared to holding them stuff accountable for what they did in year four, just because it's top of mind and because it was recent, you know? And so uh, there, it strikes me that the George Santos situation isn't really necessarily going the way that one might expect it to. And I wonder if that's maybe part of it is, you know, it's a little bit too much of a joke, but also it's just coming and going. We're not even holding on to these lies. We just have this overall impression of like, okay, whatever. You think I'm not in New York, so no bigs. Well, I mean, they gave I mean, him two committee memberships. Like yeah. clearly the Republicans don't mind. Right. Not but, but Sarah and I refer to this as, you know, drops in a bucket, right? And if the bucket's already full, then you're not going to make much of a difference. But you don't, you didn't know much about George Santos until this came out. So I think it ends up being a lot more influential. And just to piggyback on what Candace has been saying about sort of the repetition, I think there's two aspects of our research that sort of speaks to the repetition, which is one, you know, being branded kind of as a liar doesn't happen with a one-off lie. It kind of needs to happen over and over again. But I think in the same sense, you know, we don't find Trump pays a price for a single episode of dishonesty unless honesty is salient. And I think that's another thing that has to be repeated over and over and over again. If honesty is salient for the first three years of a presidential term and then the election year, something else comes along that makes honesty, you know, take a back seat then you wouldn't really expect a politician maybe to be punished for the lies that they've told. I want to throw in, this brings up, I'm actually glad we brought up George Santos for a couple of reasons, and not only for, you know, unfortunate humor, the, <laughs> uh, that last conversation, most recent conversation we had on this program was with Rick, with Rick Hasen. Uh, and the, uh, and we talked about the decline. He talked about the decline of trusted arbiters, the decline of, of folks who can serve sort of judgment proxies. And I can say, oh, that person is not merely my judgment proxy because I agree with them on critical policy issues, but just because I think that they sort of see the world and tell me the truth. Uh, and the and the George Santos thing to me is, as I understand now how so many congressional races are being run, where they're more expensive. There's more reliance on paid media and local media has declined. So whereas before, right, like the local stories, local journalism about a, a given candidate might have been X percentage of my analysis of that candidate. Uh, and the amount of media that was this was this percentage. Now that amount of media has been purchased is multiple X and that media that was not purchased has been declined. And so, you know, things like things like fluffy hearted principles, like whether or not somebody is who they say they are in a fundamental way, you know, who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell the people whose job it is to do that? Uh, I want to keep digging on this question of then which lies matter more. I've heard a few things. One. Uh, the lies that matter more are lies that counter my identity or counter my priors or counter my preferences. If they, if they depart from what I wish, then I'm more mad about them. If they come towards to what I wish, then I, or what I understand to be true, then I'm less likely to be mad about them. Uh, I heard something else 
which is uh, which is lies that aren't sufficiently committed to. If somebody doesn't <laughs> keep saying it enough times, then maybe. But then what I heard, not but then, and then what I heard is if we hear more about a lot of things that are repeated, either different lies or diff, you know changing the subject, rather than hearing about that over and over and over again. Joe Biden was, uh, earlier time he ran for president, was eliminated from the presidential primary because he overstated, he lied about his college grades, right? That feels quaint in the modern world, right. to too a degree. Uh, and, 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 and polarized, just to use the word that you say. <laughs> <laughs> and it what because and that was repeated over and over again until he was no longer in the race again and then it was repeated over and over again until there were other things to talk about it, it makes me wonder then and i want to dig into what lies matter more and i guess i'll do that rather than making my point let me hear more what else do we know about the lies that matter more rather than the lies that seem to matter less I mean, if if I, I'm going to, I'll say this quickly because I have a feeling my co-authors here disagree with me, but, you know, so much of what we are looking at is what's the, what is the cost of the process by which this thing happened, right? Whether it's flip-flopping, whether it's lying, we, in our research, we hold the final act, whether, you know, somebody fired a staffer but lied about it initially, right? The, the firing of the staffer happened or the not firing of the staffer, I think is how we did in our experiment. So, I mean, my personal view is that all, all lies matter equally they, in terms of what people are punishing. If they're punishing the lie, then that's going to be roughly the same across all events. All this stuff about, well, if you're flipping to my position or if you're lying about something I don't like, it's not the lie that's doing the work. It's the other stuff that's that comes with the lie. And so I feel like it's almost completely divorced from dishonesty, this question of which lies matter more. It's sort of like if you lie and as a result, you know, like we get nuked, that's going to matter a lot. But it wasn't the lie that did it. It was the fact that we got nuked. Yeah, it's uh, more like the policy outcome is what can make people like or ignore the lie, I should say. But it's but the act of lying is separate from what that lie creates for the politician, for the constituents. Um, is that kind of like the distinction? Like, I agree with you, Jared, that like we were trying to isolate. We're telling you that this person did or, you know, lied or was untruthful about something that happened. What do you mm -hmm. think about that behavior? That is different from this person lied and this was the consequence of it. What yeah. do you think about that consequence? That's like, the important distinction here. With yeah, like with with the um the the family separation, you know, we had to make the final outcome was Trump rescinded the policy. And so people were fairly positive, right? Like that was that was what most people wanted to see Trump do. People were fairly positive about it. And we're just looking at do people like him less when they find out he lied prior to rescinding the policy as opposed to just rescinding the policy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and, and the same thing with the Jared Kushner clearance, you know, pressuring um, everybody sort of, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people disapproved of him uh, pressuring, I forget who it was, the NSA or whoever it was to, to, to provide um, Kushner with the security clearance. Um, the question is, how much more do they disapprove because he lied about it to everyone? And, you know, the answer to that is always like a little bit more if people care a lot about honesty. 
Um, but 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 you do see actually massive swings in terms of approval of a particular situation, depending on what that final outcome was. If he's doing something that they like, then they're going to be pretty positive regardless of whether it comes with a lie. And if they're doing something you dislike, then they're going to be pretty negative regardless of whether it comes with a lie. We're really working on the margins with the lie. And that's why we picked. Oh, go ahead, Candace. I was just, I was gonna I was gonna add a couple couple of um, uh, thoughts about like maybe another side of what, uh, how how well the punishment is like actually instituted. I think another component to this is um, again back to the idea that we have like short term memories um, as voters, especially or just even as citizens. You know the the longer so uh, the border crisis, the Kushner clearance, whatever whatever the the scenario is. How long does it take between lie and outcome, right? In our experiment, we gave them to the to the people who were in that group or in those groups, we gave them at the same time. We gave you the situation, you also had the outcome right away, right? If the outcome actually takes two months for me to see, it depends, it kind of depends. And I might, my short-term memory might start to, to kick in there. And then the lie is not as salient to me anymore because it's not as recent. I'm not as hurt about it or, or as upset about it. We've moved on to other things. Perhaps I've even forgotten that it happened or perhaps that I, perhaps I missed the outcome. So I actually never learned that it was a lie to begin with, right? Because it happened at a press conference that I did not watch. I think the other component here that we have to think about is that, um, Voters, God love us as voters, but we have a tendency to be a little bit lazy. And so the the amount of work that would go into uh, creating a punishment for a politician, let's talk about let's talk about varying degrees here, which kind of leads back to, you know, we we essentially did this in our paper. We had three different IVs because we sat down and we know in most in most voting research and most American political research, the outcome of most interest, the outcome measure, the dependent variable of most interest is what we call a ballot test. It is just, are you going to win? Sometimes it's measured as a, as general approval of a single person, but sometimes it's, you know, pitting one person against the other, right? That's what campaigns care about, actual politicians in the field care about. It's also a big thing that, that academics who study voting and campaigns care about. That's the, like the biggest outcome. We measured that, but then we also stepped back and use, we asked about, you know, how would you, how would you measure this uh, politicians? You like, are they honest in the situation? Yes or no? So we just asked to assess the honesty. That is very easy for a voter to do. And it's not saying, okay, he lied once, I've got to kick him out of office. So it's not even necessarily the work, the physical work that I would have to do as a voter, but the mental work that I'd have to do, or perhaps the change that I would have to ask for from my government structure in order to punish a single lie is not an attractive invitation for voters to consider. And so one of the ways that we were able to move the needle is by giving less consequential punishments of like, will you call him dishonest? And they would bite. Even partisans would bite on Trump and say, yes, he was dishonest in the situation. Like, how do you feel he handled this situation? Just this situation. And they would bite on that. What we couldn't, and he's a known politician. He's a co-partisan. The one thing that we couldn't move with a single lie ever was the overall impression. And part of that is the mental heft that we were asking voters to do to take this instance and then blow the whole thing out of the water and say, this guy is, he's out, he's out of my life. I don't ever want to talk to him again, you know? And I, I think what's, I love what Candace just said. I totally agree. I think what is also telling is that we don't hear opponents 
fixating on particular lies when they're criticizing the person they're running against. It is obvious like that the Democrats have called Trump a liar and that he they're trying to attack his like general character. But we don't see them seizing on the multitude of individual lies that they very well could have. They could have run with the idea, oh, Kushner didn't deserve the security clearance and Trump intervened, even though he said he didn't. But they're like, no, I think collectively they're like, that's a waste of time. Voters are not following it this closely. Why would I waste campaign time trying to convince them that Donald Trump's a liar or try to drive home this idea that he's a liar, right? Do I really want to focus campaign energy on that particular story that convincing a voter that he lied about this thing? That's just too much work, right? Like voters don't care at that level. So, I mean, even more, this kind of makes me excited to the fact that we did move the needle on some dependent variables, right? Like Candace was talking about. But I think it's really telling that we don't see politicians seizing on the, he lied. I'm going to tell you how he lied. I want you to look at these words and then look at these words later, right? They don't do that. They focus on the outcome, not the politician's behavior. I mean, I'm not trying to say that they're not also trying to say that he's a liar. They love that angle too, of course. But it's, but they're not uh, kind of making clear to the public the process by which they know someone told a lie. They're because they know that the public can't hold all that in their head and isn't going to remember or maybe even care. Like, oh yeah, okay, you convinced me that he lied about this one thing. Is that really throw out two other things? I'll throw out two other things. One, we start with priors that politicians lie, and so once you've convinced a voter that a politician has lied. What have you convinced them of? Right. right? Yeah. I think right. that's one. I think that's one barrier. And then another barrier is if I if I throw a stone at a glass house, right? I have to evaluate the glassness or brickness of my own house. And if I'm a human being who walks on this earth, particularly if I'm saying a lot of things, making a lot of commitments, a lot of the times, the number of times I'm going to say something wrong are more than zero, right? Like oh, as yeah. a politician, I was proud that my Politifact rating was like. I don't know, in the 70s or 80s. But guess what? That means it wasn't 100. That means I too was a liar. And on important things that were really scary to me, it was harder to tell the truth. And I don't think that made me less human. I think it made me far too imperfect and a sinner, but I know that I'm not alone, right? And so I think it's also a little bit like for, for the for the politicians to stand up there and say, let me tell you what a liar my opponent is. They're opening themselves up to a line attack that they are probably also, you know, subject to. So those are a couple of elements I'd go ahead. But go ahead, Professor. Well, you know, I think you're absolutely right. And that is something that we hear all the time. Like when I talk about my research to non-political scientists, they're like, why are you even bothering studying that? We know politicians are liars. They all do it. And just the cynicism that that is the baseline, that people assume that politicians are lying all the time, You know, that is fascinating to me. And I'm like, well, then why did you vote for your candidate of choice right, if you believe that she's a liar, too? Well, they all do it. So, you know, and then it just kind of devolves into this. Oh, the system is broken and there's no fixing it. Lesser of but, two evils. Yes. And so that is a common response that, oh, well, everybody does it. And I'm like, OK, that doesn't make it right. Or that then begs the question of, OK, well, if everybody's doing it, you're also then admitting that you're voting for someone who does this, too. But, yeah, it's like the kind of trying to dismiss the lie by saying it's just politics is really a fascinating response to me because they seem like, OK, well, I don't I don't have to care about if my person lied because everybody does it. But I'm going to conveniently ignore 
when my candidate lies is just. We also like, and the the other point too is is really interesting because we and I think you asked this earlier, like who lies more? Do, do politicians lie more or less than non politicians? We lie as voters a whole lot. Right. I mean, a bunch of research that Jared has done that I've done in the past, we both had the same um, uh, advisor in graduate school, um, but it was about how voters lie because of socially desirable pressures uh, that that civic duty kind of places on them. Right. And so people lie about showing up to vote. And consistently, we when we look at aggregate measures, too many people say they voted and we're looking at the voter rolls going, nope, not that many people were here. I know that people are lying. I just don't know which ones are lying. Right. But so we, and we tell lies to ourselves a lot. And I think that we do a big component of that when we're evaluating a co-partisan or a politician, just maybe, you know, in for some other reason or another person that for some other reason, we have an overall general positive opinion of, and then we encounter something that doesn't fit into that positive opinion it becomes really, really tricky. And so part of the way that we do that is that, yeah, we also lie, right? And so I don't know if it's more or less, but I know that that's a, you know, a shared interest, if you will, <laughs> between voters and politicians. It's I, it's a shared interest. So, common, yeah. the, so the two two fundamental questions of the papers, I understand it, were first, does the lie change citizen opinions of politicians? Right. And what I think we now have discussed and understand is a politician who had about whom a voter has a firm opinion. Uh, Donald Trump has been the example used a bunch of times, will not have that opinion changed by a lie very much. A known, a known, known politician, a politician does not have big name for marriage, doesn't built that sense of identity connection. Uh, that politician who isn't my guy or my person. Uh, again, we'll use the same example. Uh, We'll have a we'll, we'll have you know more consequence. Maybe George Santos is an example of a politician having more consequence. Still getting committee assignments, won the race, wasn't held accountable then. But there are at least local New York, even Republicans, who are saying, "Hey, bro, could we get somebody else in that slot?" Uh, and in part because what most people know about Santos is the cascading set of dishonesties. Second question is whether disapproval of a lie is larger when that social norm and a principle of honesty is deemed to be important. And you made the point that even partisans are willing to accept dishonesty when the uh, social norms of, of honesty matter, but that partisans will care more about honesty when it matters more, when they have committed to it. Say more about that. Say more about, because if this is not only descriptive, but also prescriptive, also we're thinking about, okay, therefore, what should we do to make our democracy a little more, have a little more fealty to facts? Then what things do we do? You first, Professor Croco, uh, what are ways that you understood that people will uh, care more about honesty when they have agreed that honesty matters and or why might that matter? What do we do with that information? So Jared and I, I think, got a similar question when I think we were presenting this work at Duke and they're like, well, what do we do with this? And it, <laughs> one thing we're like, maybe we could like drop pamphlets from the sky like, hey, lying isn't cool. Let's <laughs> let's value honesty. But it's really hard to think of a proscriptive thing. First of all, who is the messenger here? Like, I mean, you know, Fred Rogers, you know, sadly has passed away, but like, we don't have like a person who everybody could agree on is a nice, good person that we should all listen to. Right. Well, no. so, uh, <laughs> so, so like, you know, Barack Obama or Michelle Obama, right. Even more popular, right. Could go out there and say, Hey, everyone, 
Americans, we all need to value honesty, right? That might convince some people, but I cannot think of a messenger of somebody who could try to get everybody on the same page that lying is bad. I can't. So our paper prescribes the idea of, hey, get people to care about honesty. We stop short of saying how to do that because I'm not sure how to implement that in a way that would be effective. I think the I think the ideal like scenario would be that your your media arm of government would be competent enough to do that and I just don't think that it's uh in a in a good enough health or structure to be trusted with that like naturally um Wait, which arm of government? I, I, I the media. Oh, the media. Yeah, fourth arm. It's funny know, that like, I didn't even think branch. the media did not even like occur NPR. to me. I thought Yeah. Right. I thought well, you meant like the BBC. Oh, you, no. mean, you mean just this, in, any media. And like any sort any media that I encounter, right? Or especially any media that I choose to self-select into and I've already got a, a you know a positive opinion of because I'm self-selecting there, that that's that is the messenger. Like literally, that is the messenger of my life, right? Is the media that I encounter. But that I, I don't think that it's in a trustworthy enough state. <laughs> that didn't even occur to me. That didn't even occur that. to me to use the media. Yeah. But also, but also the interesting thing about what we did to to bring honesty to light is that we did not just say, hey, don't tell lies. Lying is bad. <laughs> we asked people to tell us what was important about honesty. And and that's kind of a fun thing about crimes is like it works it's like they did it to themselves our respondents made this happen in their own brains they put themselves into this this mood or this uh this kind of mindset where then as they encountered things afterwards they saw that information through a different set of glasses because they were in this mindset of just describing how important it is to be honest to them and their life so we didn't tell them anything about honesty. We asked their opinions about honesty. And that's another place where like, even though that's always my go-to is like, well, it'd be cool if we could trust the news, you know? <laughs> but um, even, even then, that I, I'm not sure exactly like logistically how that would work if the anchor just says, and now we will take a 10 minute moment of silence for you to remind yourselves how important it is to be honest. And then I will tell you the headlines. You know, that's not going to work, but that's what the prime is. And it was not us saying, you better be honest, you know? Um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting that this prime kind of, the, our, our respondents put themselves in the mindset that we needed um, and we just had to ask. Well, and I, I do think that there's an opportunity for campaigns to play a role. Now, granted, we've talked about kind of all politicians are liars, so they maybe don't want to throw stones, glass houses and all, but, you know, a, a big, like I, my, my, largest research agendas on empathy. And that became a huge centerpiece of Biden's campaign in 2020, because he figured if the campaign centered on questions of caring and compassion, they weren't going to support Donald Trump. That just wasn't what people thought about Donald Trump. So he wanted to keep repeating that. And if you watched the Democratic convention over four nights, it was just constant empathy, 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 and all these episodes in which Biden was empathetic. So if you have candidates who are seen as fairly honest or who have, you know, burnished their credentials as being people who are willing to, you know, speak truth to power, uh, et cetera, I think you can have campaigns that talk about honesty as a centerpiece. Now, granted, that means, you know, a lot of campaigns can't because there will be some scandal at some point and then they'll be like, let's not talk about honesty. But to the degree that, you know, when people think about politics, they're thinking about honesty. I do think the campaigns play a, a pretty big role. 
I think it's a, even if we stop short of prescription of like what's the what's the right program to amplify this. I think what you're saying is critically important, right? Just understanding the power of reminder. Just understanding if we are remind. It has been said of of locked doors that aren't that hard to break into. That what a locked door does is remind a good person to be good. It reminds somebody who's not going to steal all the time. Okay, I'm not going to steal. I remember that. That's why I have locked doors. It's not because it actually stops me from breaking into a house or from breaking a window of an automobile. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to do that sort of thing. That that, that reminder, it might be that reminder from almost any source could be useful. And therefore there could be lots, whether it's the media, whether it's, I, I sometimes, in my dream very often, my understanding of what we do here, because we're not, my goal is, you know, the goal, our goal is not to be Joe Rogan. It would be an unsuccessful goal anyway. The goal is hopefully that we will reach one person who will do one thing that will matter. And if we can do that at least one time, we will not have done this in vain. And that it might be that there is a listener who says, you know what, I'm going to start the nonprofit and we're going to put out mail pieces. And the only thing we're going to do is two things. We're at the beginning of the campaign. We're going to set out a mailer that says, remember, honesty matters. And then in the middle or the end of the campaign, we're going to send another one that says, here's your honesty score. Right. And and you're going to be honest about it. And it's not going to be for purposes of winning an election. Or maybe it is. And there might be another idea. We don't have to necessarily come up with that idea, although it's fun to conjecture. But even just that understanding that reminder matters, that that a call to principle makes us better, that an invitation to be better human beings very often is received positively and we want to become better human beings. Right. I don't know if I'm a good person, but I'm a better person when I'm around better people. I mean, I would, I would just say yes, amen. And also, you know, to go back to the prime, you know, um, as I, as I mentioned, like people are doing this to putting themselves in this mindset, but also this is the part of it. That's interesting about the social norm aspect is the internal pressure. Like they didn't have to tell us other than describing honesty, they didn't have to like assess how honest they felt after doing that. Or, you know, we had some, some crazy manipulation checks, but we didn't, you know, we didn't need them to, to uh, prove to us that they were being honest. They were imposing their own section in, internally and saying, I should be honest because I was just talking about it. And so I should make sure, you know, like, and maybe not even super consciously were they doing that, but they were, they were the ones enforcing the norm. Right. And it was just in it, it, relatively speaking, a very tacit intervention on our part as researchers. We've gone a little past time. Let's start to wrap. And I really appreciate the uh, the depth in which you've gone. Really appreciate your time and your work. Uh, something we haven't gotten deeply into, but at least wanted to touch on is the role of misinformation and disinformation generally. That one of the things that's got to make it harder uh, with or without longitudinal analysis if, if lying has gotten worse or lying has become more or less forgiven is that it's got to be harder now to parse or hold accountable when there are so many more information sources and the routes for accountability of all of those information sources are outnumbered. Right? It's, too, it's too hard. There's too much information, whether it's about communicable diseases or people's personal lives, who the heck knows. Uh, and, and I wonder if, to what degree did that impact your analysis or to what degree is that just sort of context we should be aware of? Professor Croco? I see it as more context to be aware of and that 
to me, like how Jared said earlier, his kind of tagline is like, LOL, nothing matters. To me, my tagline in my research is, LOL, there's no fixing this mess. Like there are a lot of good attempts. I think recently we've seen like during the debates, you know, whatever, you know, whoever's broadcasting it will say, oh, actually, you know, this isn't true about the GDP, what they just said. Or like there's attempts to fact check and to appear neutral. But I just feel like in this media environment that we live in, that they're not reaching enough people like they, you know, they could put it on, you know, billboards in Times Square and people wouldn't believe it or internalize it. We don't have a source anymore that is trusted by the majority of people, right? Where people think, oh, that was not true. So I think it's just we kind of live in this morass of disinformation right now. And campaigns and the media, whoever is trying to break through and get their message to be the one that comes through. But it's just so hard, even if your mission is to try to get the truth out there or to try to identify when somebody is lying, that's really hard to do. I think it's just there's too much and there's no streamlined way to present, you know, when someone's telling a lie or what the actual truth is. Professor uh, Torito, Candace, any closing word you have, anything I should have asked that I didn't or anything that any piece we should have covered that we woefully failed to? Um, gosh, I mean, well, you know, line, line politicians, um, are, are nothing new, but they're, uh, it's important that, you know, that voters pay attention to this. Um, you know, I just kind of listening and reflecting a little bit on what Sarah just finished saying, you know, the media environment in which we live is incredibly fragmented. Right. It, and I think that's probably the nicest way to say it. <laughs> so there's so like you said, there's so many sources, so many options they are all over the place on the quote unquote political spe spectrum or um, in level of, you know, production or et cetera. Right. And so there's there's a whole lot of stuff and it's hard to think about any successful way of corralling all of that or any of that into something more meaningful and tangible and trustworthy. But again, I guess like. That, so that makes me sad, but like, also, I think the little bit of hope and, and, and maybe it just needs a little bit of a entrepreneurial thought is, um, you know, how to make this, maybe this is an effort that we pursue as an internal matter. <laughs> By that, I mean, like, again, our prime wasn't us putting people into a mindset. It was people putting themselves into a mindset. Um, and I don't know exactly what that would look like because I don't think many things that we do, I don't know, maybe when AI is running the world and we all have chips, we can just upload some new software and remind everybody to think about honesty for a few minutes. But, you know, that that was the most successful way to do it. And, you know, in, in terms of campaigns who might try to get through a message of like honesty, or at least building up kind of an admirable person as, as, uh, as their, their image of their candidate, yeah, it's it's risky, but that could that could be successful as long as the drumbeat is consistent enough. Um, and you know, I mean, that fragment that fragmented market can still uh, kind of get in the way of of some things. But it's it's possible to have voters care about lies and punish lies. Um, it's just not super easy. <laughs> I I think I just piggyback really quickly on something Candace Please. said. So we have this fragmented media environment that's obvious. What I always try to remind my students of, though, 
is that it's not like the good old days were better where all of these trusted network anchors were somehow these paragons of truth, right? They were, you know, let's just say three networks, all the anchors are white men. Yes, they all basically said the same things, right? That doesn't mean that that's truth. That doesn't mean that that's representing what Americans should or even all or even the majority think, right? That was one way to do the news that was not fragmented. We live in a very different world now. And we often lament how fragmented the news is. And when you talk to people of previous generations, they're like, oh, yeah, it didn't used to be like that. You used to be able to trust the news. I would not go that far. I think we had a very different environment several decades ago. What we're living in is very different. Uh, The truth, the real truth, whatever that means, is hard to get out of both. It's just a different type of challenge. Yeah. And if truth is just something we all agree on, with fewer sources of information, we agreed on more. Yes, that's a very good point. Yes. I was and I was going to just say, like, it, it, it makes me think and I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist at the end of this. But like, what is truth? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I, it makes me think of like the you know, if you were to testify in court or something, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, you know, like the whole truth or just like say true things. Like this statement that I'm saying is true. Is that truth? Right. And so, you know, Sarah's describing like the major three and I grew up in, you know, the tail end of that. And I remember having three to five TV stations when I was growing up. Um, And, and the, the, I remember also like the, the same stories didn't matter which broadcast you watched. It was like, who do I, which guy do I think is most handsome or would I rather have a beer with or something? That's the, that's the broadcast I'm going to watch but also how much information was not in those broadcasts, right? Like everything that's getting filtered into that hour or that half hour, is it truth because I saw it on TV or is it is are things that I did not see also truth? I didn't see those. So like, what what is the job of even the media in the sense of delivering truth? Is it just saying true things? Is that truth? Or is it the whole truth? Like, what am I leaving out that's also true? And that also might be important. I just didn't have enough airtime for it. And then that brings us back to like misinformation, right? Like you're asking, you're questioning what is truth. And that's, that's literally how you end up in an environment like this, because you don't know. I'll say two things and then say goodbye. And you guys can say whatever you want. Uh, It does remind of an enduring theme of this series of conversations, which is a recommitment to some basic principles that for a long time, we sort of took for granted. And I don't mean to say, therefore, everything used to be great. Uh, yeah, when it wasn't long before Walter Cronkite was on air, the Black people couldn't vote. Okay, so it's not about a bygone era, but it is about a recommitment to certain principles that we have said for a long time we believe and we can't take for granted, including reminding people that a shared commitment to facts and shared truth matters. And we can't just take that for granted where we are in democracy now is we can't just take for granted stuff that we've probably been taking for granted too much. The second is to lobby, is to thank, express gratitude and lobby y'all further that I do think that universities can play an important role here. That the, uh, if much of what we're, no, yeah, much, I'm going to say much, if a meaningful amount of what we're facing is a loss or reduction in shared and trusted arbiters. Not that Walter Cronkite always told all of the whole truth from every perspective and lived experience that needed to be understood. But that there are fewer people now, Fred Rogers is dead, fewer people now that said, well, Fred Rogers reminded me to be honest. So I'm going to try to be honest today. I'm going to try not to break into that house that has a locked door that I can get through. 
that one share of uh, those trust arbiters can be universities, can be the people there. They've got really smart people who are mission-driven, who have some resources, right? Who have a little bit of money, at least to, you know, pay their rent, hopefully. Uh, There's some students who can help with research. And there is some trust, at least, of them being smart and mission-driven. And they've got motive, means, and opportunity. And the university in the modern era, not only publishing for the eyeballs, and it's it's even, I think, in the back of my mind why I in partly and just jokingly quibble over things like the words polarization and, uh, and the, the nothing matters and the word norms versus the word principles, is that thinking about if everything is working, then the, all the academy has to do is communicate to the decision makers. But if things aren't working, and if the decision makers is everybody, then the academy has to speak to more of those people and figuring out how the universities themselves, the college professors themselves, can be a growing share of those trusted arbiters is, a I don't know, a little bit of a hobby horse. And one of the reasons why I so appreciate your work, why I appreciate you participating in these conversations. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. This is fun. Sarah Croco, Jared McDonald, Candace Torito, thank you so much for being Democracy Nerds. And and Sarah, you were about to say something. I didn't know if you wanted me to respond to that as like our role of an educator. Please, please, of course. So I absolutely see that as a big part of being a professor. And I always joke that the stats class, the intro stats class that a lot of freshmen take is my favorite class to teach because that... I see that as a huge opportunity to create critical thinkers. And I have them read this amazing book called Calling Bullshit by Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West, two professors out of uh, UW Seattle. It is an amazing book that teaches people how to be critical consumers of media, how to read graphs with a critical eye, how to think about what does it really mean to like, what does not really, what does truth mean, but like, can we believe things that, you know, come out of AI? It asks really big questions that I think are really fun. And another book along that I assigned in a different class is called Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Students love that book. That book really kind of challenges how people think about the world and kind of these biases that humans all have. Those two books, students love them. They write on evaluations. This was my favorite part of the semester. Even though we're talking about stats the rest of the time, which they universally do not like, they love those books that teach them how to be critical thinkers. Uh, and so that, to me, in the I've done that like probably over the past 10 years, it's become more of a focus on my teaching. And that has been the most rewarding, is just seeing those light bulbs go off, where they realize that they haven't been critically in it you know, thinking about what they've been consuming and how they move forward in a different way is really rewarding as an educator. Can I make one more mention of Mr. Rogers just because it's worth it? Um, or hopefully it always is. But uh, I remember talking to a, a buddy of mine, his his kid, who I call my nephew, um, watches cartoons, his young, young kid. Um, and, you know, certain cartoons that he watches put him in a certain mood, but he also watches episodes of Mr. Rogers. And that's a very different mood afterwards. Right. And so my friend was telling me, I think it's just it's just because everything is slower. Right. Mr. Rogers will play a game and then you sit through it while he cleans up the game. There's nothing happening and there's no flashing lights and he's not saying anything. It's just quiet. And he's cleaning for like 10, 15 seconds, you know. And so my nephew, after watching Mr. Rogers, is kind He's, he's got a more gentle voice. He's not like screaming and he doesn't feel hyper. Watches some other cartoons. He feels all of those things, right? Like all of those, like, ah, I'm driving mom and dad crazy kind of feelings. And I think that this is maybe 
part of the role of academia is we got to be the Fred Rogers where we're slowing stuff down because we do get weedy sometimes and we come up with these like crazy terms and try to shove all of these like definitions into things. But, you know, we do and, and we don't always like come up with research questions that have super tangible answers right away. Like, here's the problem. Here's how we fix it. Right. It it, it does. It is kind of a, a slower pace. Um, but I think that in doing that, we get more quality out of it. And and what Sarah does teaching critical thinking, that's a that's a, a pretty um, a pretty f- like foolproof way to make fewer fools, I guess. Professor Sarah Croco, <laughs> Jared McDonald, Candace Trudeau, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being democracy nerds. We got to be the Mr. Rogers. Appreciate all our listeners. Be well. <laughs> democracy nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy.